0: Welcome to Midwretched, the home of the most heartless of the heartland.
1: Join us, Tommy and Mick, as we share the best true crime tales the Midwest has to offer. Two. Ooh, I pressed it.
0: All right, welcome back to Midwretched.
1: Welcome back, everyone. We're excited to have you
0: here. Hi, friends. We hope that you're well out there.
1: Yeah. Yay! What's going on? I don't know what is going on. When is this going to premiere? Early November? Yeah. Yeah. Halloween has passed.
0: Yeah, the world could be a whole different place. It could be. This is. Oh yeah, this, could, this will be our first episode post-election.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: We hope everybody got out there and voted. Yeah, for sure. And we hope that uh we're not hurtling into the apocalypse any further than we already are. Yeah.
1: Right? Ooh. What do you I don't want the election to be scarier than this podcast episode.
0: Same. Yeah, same. And this one's pretty weird. And <laughs> this one's got <laughs> this one's got some layers of weirdness to it. And I'm going to kind of introduce it by talking about just how I kind of came to do the research on it and some of the frustrations that I had before I start the story. So it's going to maybe be a little bit ranty.
1: I had to tuck in Murder Beagle. Uh, He like buried himself under some blankets.
0: Well, I'm ready to tell you the story of the
1: weepy voiced killer. I am so ready to hear this story because this guy is so fascinating to me.
0: He is really interesting. And he, um, it's interesting also because I feel like he has gotten a lot of coverage but also, at the same time, not a lot of coverage. Because I feel like everyone that's a true crime person knows the one calls. And if you don't, yes. buckle up, my friends, because it's going to be real weird. Yeah. But there's not a lot further than that. Like, I couldn't even remember the guy's name when I was yeah. kind of coming to do this one. I was like, what was his name? What was his name? All I could think of was Weepy Voice Killer. So, I think there's just so many other, like, forgotten details. And, yeah. um some forgotten people along the way and also like so i'm gonna try to give as much justice to that as possible there is also just kind of a lack of information out there but for the most part i um i worked really hard to find as much as i could and there's not a well i ended up finding a ton but it was a lot of work and it was basically just me and the minneapolis star tribune just like (laughs) Together forever, and I'm just going through everything, everything, everything until I could come up with yep. kind of the whole story and everything. So it's just interesting because I think he's in some ways infamous, but in other ways just kind of lost to time.
1: I think, like, in like a lot of serial killers, I think especially from like the 70s through the 90s, there's so much misinformation and glorification yeah. and monsterization of these people. Yeah. I just made up that word. It was a good word, but. You don't really ever know much about them, even if you watch a hundred documentaries, because it's just, this guy was so big and scary. Yeah. You're like, okay, but But, what made him... But why, though? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what I ended up being kind of frustrated about with, like, my initial research. And the initial research being just not enough information for me to be personally satisfied with it, that it was like, okay, now I'm going to have to go a layer deeper and then another layer deeper and then another layer deeper until it felt like I actually knew the story. And that took, it wasn't so much the time that it took. It was more like just the legwork that it took, which surprises me for an 80s serial killer. Yeah. Because that is like, you think of it as like romanticizing and there's all this, you know, there's documentaries, there's podcasts, there's all this stuff out there all that to say I did some legwork like, work here <laughs> and um I appreciate no I enjoyed it I just feel like I like I learned a lot that I had no idea and this was another one of those stories kind of like John Norman Collins the Ypsilanti Ripper where I thought I knew the story yeah. and in some ways I did but there were just other things about this guy that I did not know and yeah I just it surprised me So I'm going to talk a little bit about why I think that is kind of along the way, because I like to talk about why I think things don't get enough attention. We like to theorize. We do like to theorize, but I also don't want to, like, theorize too, too much. So we'll find the balance. It'll be great. Uh. Yeah, so this case takes us to the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul of Minnesota in the early 1980s. So, uh, again, like a big shout out to the Minneapolis Star Tribune for uh, excellent reporting kind of along the way on this case and also really good summative reporting. Uh, And that really made, I think, a lot of this research really possible. And I really, really relied on them. So if there's anybody from the Minneapolis Star Tribune out there listening, thank you. So the Twin Cities, uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, uh, was then and still is obviously just a huge urban and suburban sprawl of an area. So I think this is, well, Cleveland took us to a a decent-sized city, but this is definitely our biggest, like, kind of urban population. In 1980 census, the whole kind of metro area had two and a half million people, which is pretty big. And Yeah. yeah, and it's been, like, kind of about the same ever since. So... When we talk about Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities, we're talking about a very large metropolitan area, which I think is part of the reason that this hasn't gotten romanticized as much as other serial killings. Because of the nature of the crimes, the crimes themselves in isolation wouldn't have been super unusual in such a large city. And so when you have serial killers that like prey on small towns or on smaller areas where it's more intimate... I do feel like there tends to be more kind of news and um, hubbub around that than stabbings in a big city. So I think that's that well
1: it. N- it. never happens here. But exactly. Big cities. Yeah.
0: And Minneapolis, St. Paul, you would have said like, well, it does happen here because we're in a big city. So that's one of my theories. So I'm not going to get too much into like what Minneapolis and St. Paul is like. It's a very, very large city. Well, city area, I should say. Minneapolis is bigger, much more of the like, I think of it as like kind of the cool cousin, you know, <laughs> and then and then St. Paul is the state capital. It's like the nerdy academic cousin. So, see. <laughs> so St. Paul is me, and Minneapolis is my cousin Pat. Hi, Pat. Hi, basically, Pat. that's kind of how I see it. So, and then the Mi- Mississippi River runs through through the Twin Cities. So it is really beautiful. So a gorgeous area, home of the Minnesota Vikings, obviously, which is a very, very large presence in my home. Mm -hmm. Everything is purple because my man's a Viking.
1: Um, Your man is a Viking, though. He
0: is. He is. Like
1: straight up, like, Viking in all of the ways. He is,
0: and he's a big Minnesota Vikings fan, so this case also made me think about him a lot because I was like, ooh, I wonder how far this is from the football stadium. (laughs) All right, so I'm going to get into the first victim of the weepy voice killer. Um, taking us to New Year's Eve, 1980. Karen Potak is a small-town college freshman from Hayward, Wisconsin. Uh, a lot I found through the course of the story that a lot of young women from small towns in Wisconsin make their way to the Twin Cities for opportunity. So I thought that was just kind of an
1: interesting little sidebar. Same thing with Ohio and Chicago.
0: Yeah, totally. That seems to be where a lot of Ohioans go, right? Yeah. So Karen was a visiting family in St. Paul for the holiday, basically. She was a college student at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point, so another smaller city. So I could imagine for her that the Twin Cities were probably a really exciting, fun place to spend New Year's Eve. <laughs> and that's exactly what she did. She danced the night away with some friends at a club called Denny's Loft. Which was uh, a now defunct nightclub downtown. The only Denny's that exists in the Twin Cities now is the diner.
1: <laughs> I look. I like to imagine it as just <laughs> like
0: Denny's by night. A Denny's night blue light special. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I did too <laughs> when I was Googling. Uh, I also thought this was kind of just wow, this is such a different time. The club closed at 1 a.m. Oh wow. Yeah. So at one, um, the friends that Karen was with, they wanted to go and do a little bit more partying, but Karen was kind of done for the night and she left while they kind of went on to continue their festivities somewhere else. So Karen left that club a little bit before one AM. Now, what happened between then and three AM is largely a mystery. But what happened at 3 a.m. was that a 911 ca- call came in to the St. Paul Police. And this call was the first time we would hear this very, very distinct voice. And I'm going to play you this piece of audio of that initial 911 call. It can be a little bit hard to hear, so we'll kind of talk through what he says afterward. Yeah. Yes, please. This is
1: an emergency. Please send not know.
0: So it's interesting that when the operator asks, Who are you? that's when the caller hangs up. So you couldn't quite hear, and the audio. I mean, this is a 1980 911 call. Well, I guess now it's 81 because we flipped over to the new year, but the quality is fairly low. But basically, what he says is please, this is an emergency. Please send a squad car uh, and an ambulance to Mullenberg Manufacturing Company. There's a girl hurt there. Now, in this call, he doesn't admit to any wrongdoing, right? Mm-hmm. He's just reporting a girl um, hurt in the snow next to the railroad track. So, When police got there, what they found was really, really shocking, and uh, one police officer noted that it was one of the most gruesome scenes that he had seen in his career. So when they got there, Karen Potak was laying nude in the snow. She had been beaten with a tire iron and stabbed several times so severely that her brain was exposed to the elements.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah.
0: Uh, And then this part is... Mind-blowing. By some miracle, she was actually conscious at that time. Oh, my What? Yeah. yeah. So totally incoherent, but conscious. Yeah. yeah. So she was rushed to the hospital, and her recovery was slow and steady, but complete. So she lived through that first attack. But she recovered. She did. She recovered. She never regained much memory of the incident, and she really stayed out of any kind of limelight, After that, for lack of a better word, she didn't furnish interviews, she didn't appear on television, she didn't um, allow herself to be interviewed for newspapers, nothing like that. So she kind of went through that, you know, really horrible attack, survived, recovered, and tried her best, from what I can find, to just go on with her life. So, you know, police were obviously just flummoxed by this. The best that they could surmise at that point was just that she had been like walking down a street and had been abducted, attacked, raped, and beaten, and left for dead. And so the assumption at that point was that the, the attacker probably thought that she was dead and did not intend to leave her alive there.
1: Yeah, you have exposed brain matter. You don't assume somebody's going to survive no. from that. I would understand why after something like that, you're like, no, I want my own life. I'd just go away. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of
0: wonder if she even like changed her name and stuff like that. Yeah. Because she's just nowhere to be found, which is good, Like good for her. Yeah. Move on with your life the best way you can, you know? So this is frustrating for police, as you can imagine. There's no information. There's not a whole lot at the scene other than her. Um, There was no weapon left at the scene. Best they could tell, she was stabbed with something like an ice pick. But, you know, precisely what the weapon would have been, just not sure. And so at that point, the person that made the call, the 911 call, would have been the only link that anyone would have had to a witness. So the police, they just thought of that person as a person of interest and hoped that they had seen something that could be helpful, like, you know, uh, somebody fleeing the scene or whatever. So to try to find that person, the police released that first clip to the public, um, hoping just that somebody would come forward and say, yeah, oh, yeah, that was me. I was the caller. Or uh, that sounds like, you know, so-and-so that I know. But no one ever did. You know, and again, like I said in the beginning, like, This was a a horrific, horrific scene, but it's also a huge city. And police are dealing with a lot. And months go by. Karen's recovery continues. She's doing pretty well, but police just don't find anything. They don't have anything. So,
1: you know. It feels, at this point, it feels just kind of like a one off. Yeah. Like, exactly. One crazy event.
0: So that was New Year's, right? Mm -hmm. So months go by. Like I said, and there's just not a lot of movement here. So when on June 3rd of the same year, three teenagers found a body, it wasn't initially linked. Mm -hmm. But so these teenage boys are going on a walk and along a stretch of unfinished road. It was at the time Highway 35 East. We're still in St. Paul. And the three teenage boys found the badly stabbed body of a young woman and this this one was deceased she was soon identified as 18 year old kimberly compton uh, and she was most recently of pepin wisconsin i i do have a little bit of information on her life which i want to give some tribute to so kimberly she had what some described as a hard life um her biological parents were uninvolved in her life and she had undergone some some trauma in her early teenage years and spent some time in mental health facilities and she also um, she was an avid journaler and she wrote a lot um, of journal entries that just described a lot of inner turmoil but she was loved by her grandparents uh, who she lived with actually since birth so she never lived with her birth parents she lived with her grandparents so her grandmother died when she was a teenager and that was really, really, really hard on her. And at that point, she kind of, it sounds like she just kind of went inward. Her friends described her as quiet and sweet. And then um, I liked this quote because I thought it really was poetic. One friend described her as somebody that, what went on in her mind was her whole world. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I really feel like-
0: So introvert. So on June 1st, which is just a few days prior to the discovery of her body, Kimberly had left a handwritten note on her grandfather's fridge. And the note said this. The reason I'm leaving isn't because I'm ungrateful for your taking me in. It's because there isn't anything in Pepin for me. And it'll be easier getting a job in a bigger area. I'm taking the bus so you won't have to worry about me. Uh, her grandfather was not worried, actually. Yeah. because she's 18. Yeah, and his thought was like, well, yeah, it makes sense you'd go and look for a job in the city. So there, this wasn't like a case of a missing persons report or anything like that. It was just incredibly tragic that she had only been in St. Paul for two days, basically.
1: Oh my God, are you serious?
0: Yeah, Yeah. she left that note on the fridge on June 1st, and her body was found on the 3rd.
1: That's so sad, especially because it feels like her grandpa was like, okay, this is your next step, I accept it, I love you. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah,
1: And for all that turmoil, it sounded like she really was
0: close to her grandparents. Yeah. Um, Especially her grandmother, but still with her grandfather,
1: too, so... There's a lot of respect there, despite everything that she's been through. Totally, yeah. And he
0: just really, it sounded like he just really wanted her to have that success. I guess she had gone off to St. Paul at one point before to wait some tables uh, and find some work there, and then ended up back home in Pepin. So it also um, had been something that she had done before, to no ill effect. So, again, this wasn't like a missing persons. It wasn't something that anybody took any kind of alarm to. But... As it turned out, on June 3rd, like I said, her body was found uh, badly stabbed by those three teenage boys. Now, what we know about the timeline on Kimberly's last day that police captain David Troyan was able to kind of trace out was that she departed off of an inner city bus, you know, just like a regular bus, you'd ride through town, Mm -hmm. (laughs) at 3.35 p.m. This time just blows my mind. Three hours and 55 minutes later, her body was found. What? Yep. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? So she got off a bus at 3.35, and three hours and 55 minutes later, her body's found. So that's a very tight window.
1: Was it, like, in the open, or, like, how did these boys come across?
0: Well, so it's a construction site, basically, where they're building out some road. So it's a stretch of okay. road that they were finishing. So now that road is is fully finished. It's Highway 35, as so you can imagine, you know, a pretty decent thoroughfare. Um, but it's unfinished, so... She was kind of in the brush, and you could see in the crime scene photo, there is some brush there, but she would have been very easily found. Yes. She was also wearing, like, bright clothing, and so she was not found nude. She was wearing bright clothing, um, actually very bright red pants, which I'll come back to That's later. It. But so it wasn't hard to find at all, at all. So, you know, if it hadn't been three te- these three teenagers, it would have been somebody else very soon after, I'm very yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So this wasn't in a real kind of in earnest attempt to hide. No, not at
0: all. And this wasn't this was right in St. Paul. So we're not trying to go into any kind of rural area or anything like that to, you know, kind of dispose mysteriously. This is right in St. Paul. All they told the media. And this is really important. All they told the media was that time she got off the bus and the time she was found. That's all they said. They didn't say anything right away about the method of killing or anything like that. So what did happen was that she had been stabbed approximately sixty-one times. I found different um, reports, you know, uh, with different kind of exact numbers, but at least sixty times. That nothing.
1: That's a lot.
0: Yes, and nothing was less than sixty. Some reports... overkill. Totally. And some reports said it was upwards of 70, 80, 90. Absolute overkill. She, again, had been stabbed with an ice pick-like object. Mm -hmm. So that comes back. And she had a shoestring or something very similar tied around her neck. It wasn't the cause of her death. The cause of death was certainly the stabbings. But there was a ligature, which there had not been on Karen Potak. Mm -hmm. But, again, those were all details that they kept under wraps. Now... During the autopsy, they found that the contents of her stomach were synonymous with a special that day at a diner called Mickey's, which was right down, not very far from where she was found. So okay. they were able to surmise that, okay, she probably had her last meal at Mickey's, which is this really cute, still uh, still there, reminds me of the restaurant that we went to on our last day in Wisconsin together, Aww. kind of like that little um, train car style. Diner. yeah, yep so that's really all they had they had somewhere to start though but interestingly at about the same time that the body was found another call came in now the timeline on this is a little bit funky because different reports will say different things some will say the call came just before the discovery others will say the discovery came just before the call because it's such a tight window my best the best I can say to my theory is that it was about the same time, but okay. probably independent of each other. I don't think that the call came in because the body was found.
1: The police hadn't like notified anything yet no or... no, okay, yeah, so h- this call had a little bit of a different
0: tone too it. Are you ready? All right. <laughs> You're with me. I just somebody with an I can't kill, myself. I can't kill
1: somebody. And I would say that is one of the most famous nine one one calls. Yeah,
0: it is, and it's the desperation of that opening line that kills me. God damn, will you find me? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And I, that is what intrigues me so much about this. Yeah, me too. The goddamn will you find me? And I can't stop myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I can't stop myself. I keep killing somebody. Mm-hmm. So he's he's out of control, right? Like he's talking about compulsion.
1: Do they have any leads at this point? Do
0: they? It's just, to me, it's interesting that he goes from just reporting the crime to basically confession. Mm-hmm. But it's that sadness and the desperation of it that, that gets to That me. really,
1: and I think is so intriguing to those of us who are really interested in the case. Yeah. And so at this point, do the police have any leads? Have they been able to go to Mickey's and see, hey, who was there or whatever?
0: Um, they don't have a ton. Um, they don't have a ton. So from what I could surmise, they went to Mickey's um, and they didn't even they weren't even able to produce like a description of anybody that Kimberly was seen with. So they really didn't have much of anything other than the calls. So at this point, they're kind of hinging a bit of their investigation, again, on the media release. Mm -hmm. So again, taking us back to Delphi, where or flashing us forward to Delphi, where it's like, we've got so little information um, that we just have to rely on these calls. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this moment in time is that he continues to call. He called right after or right about the same time that Kimberly's body was discovered. He calls at about the same time that the body is found, but he continues to call. On the 5th of June, he makes another call. This one is the one that I always think of when I think of this guy. So I'm going to play it for you now. This is kind of the infamous don't talk, just listen call. I couldn't
1: know why i so I can't the not
0: So that one's a little bit garbled. Did you catch, mm-hmm. were you able to catch it? I
1: was able to catch a little bit of it, obviously, like, was he saying, when I get drunk, I can't stop myself? He's saying, I keep getting drunk. Oh, I keep getting drunk. Okay. I, that was the, yeah, the interpretation I was getting. Stopped. Yeah,
0: no, that's, uh, I listened to it a few times and I had to kind of find a transcript to really be able to understand it, but it's, he keeps getting drunk. He can't stop getting drunk. He can't stop thinking about it. He can't stand the idea of being locked up. He keeps thinking it's all a big dream, but he can't stop himself. He can't help himself. Mm -hmm. So this is where I think I wanted to kind of see some of your thoughts around, and we'll come back to it later, this idea of dissociation that it sounds like is happening a bit. I feel as though when we hear him say things like, it's like it's a big dream, Um, Mm -hmm. I just can't stop myself. What we're talking about at that point is compulsion and dissociation. So this also, I think, differentiates him from other serial killers. And at this point, he's not a serial killer. He's has one attack and then one murder under his belt. But when we talk about serial killers, we talk a lot about that, like cold calculating premeditation. Mm -hmm. There's a plan. There's this like very detailed methodology
1: which I don't think is ever as common as we think it is or as Criminal Minds says it. Exactly. Yeah. We want it to be common because it's interesting. It's like it's the Dexters, right? Um, yes.
0: Yes. And who doesn't love those shows? But I think in a lot of ways, like this case feels more, I don't want to say common, but it feels more like how this kind of
1: thing would go down if it were to go down more ordinarily it feels, it, yeah it feels more ordinary yeah. and I mean I've made the argument that to me that's scarier
0: it is right because it's like it's your average person it's not your you know Ed Gein's yeah. in their back 40 like making skin lamps it's it could be anybody oh, we're gonna talk so much about Ed. Gein's I cannot wait <laughs> so yeah I think there's like there's this air of the typical with this case, that is unsettling, and what makes it atypical is these calls. Interestingly, to me, too, though, is the fact that we have precedent of other killers making communication to police,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but that communication is most often, or at least in my you know, layperson research, it's most often taunting or um, inviting, inviting, or showing off, tempting. or tempting, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's coded. It's, like, it's fame-seeking.
1: Well, but... And we're gonna get more into this, but I'm gonna... I'll throw it out there now. He's calling the police. He's asking for them to catch him, but he's not giving them his name. No, he's not. So, in a way, it still feels a little bit, like, tempting and taunting. A little. Yeah, a little. And we'll come back to
0: that later because there's something else that happens that... I think really throws that idea into question that I and I think it's really interesting.
1: And you mentioned dissociation, but it's it's not pure dissociation because he clearly remembers doing these things.
0: Right. Right.
1: It's that like I
0: snapped and I did it, but I have this full recollection of it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, other calls came in on June 6th. Allegedly. Now, these ones, I couldn't find them. Uh, audio of them so this information is alleged uh, but allegedly he makes other calls to the operator remember those
1: (laughs) operator. (laughs) Operator. yeah
0: and um, local newspapers yeah this time saying that reporting of the murder was not accurate so that's when we get into that taunting a little bit Mm -hmm. or that Mm -hmm. fame seeking now I couch that again, though, with these calls are alleged. They're not on the record. Yes. Yeah. So I part of me is and I don't want to sound like I'm being a sympathizer, but part of me is a little skeptical.
1: Okay, I think that's totally fair to be skeptical. Like anyone can call an operator. Yeah, exactly. And anyone can say that this happened or pretend to be that person. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the calls are going out to the news because the police are thinking, okay, this is going to help us. On June 11th, he made another call, more like the first ones, where it's that I can't stop myself, I'm out of control type of call, allegedly. But here's another thing that I think is kind of interesting. So at this point, we have a potential serial killer on our hands, right? We've got two attacks, very similar, very similar ages. I didn't really talk about what they the two girls, Kimberly and Karen, looked like, but fairly similar in appearance. They're both um, kind of on the small side, brunette, kind of olive skin. So a similar physical look to them, similar ages, like I said, both small town girls living in the Twin Cities for whatever reason, you know, seeking opportunity. So Mm -hmm. We do have similarity between these two victims. Now, whether or not that similarity is purposeful on behalf of the attacker or coincidental at this point, we can't really say. Yeah. Yeah. But we do have a potential serial attacker, right? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So when we talk about like serial killer, like escalation and stuff like that, we talk about an increase in frequency, Ah, uh, the cooling off periods get shorter. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to me about this is that it takes another year before police get another call from our friend Weepy. Oh wow! So uh, a little over a year later, on August eighth, this call comes in. <laughs>
1: What's your take on that call? You know, it made me think like you listen to true crime long enough and you do hear a lot of 911 calls. Yeah. Of people that genuinely it is an accident or, you know, somebody accidentally shot or killed somebody. And it sounds like it. But again, he's avoiding ever giving them any information. Yeah. Yeah. And he it sounded like he convinced he confessed to one of the murders again. Yeah. So he said um
0: he said, please don't talk. Just listen. I'm sorry I killed that girl. I stabbed her 40 times. So I'm going to talk about who he's talking about in a second. But then he comes back to Kimberly Compton was the first one over and over in St. Paul. So he brings Kimberly back up. Yeah. While calling in on another person. Mm -hmm. Because he's not calling in on Kimberly. This is August 8th, 1982. We're over a year later. Mm -hmm. So he's calling in on another girl. But he, he says he's going to kill himself. But he's really losing it at this point. Like this is... If we believe that it's an authentic expression, he is like legit sobbing on the phone right now. Disoriented. Yeah. 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 I see it as that like ugly, like crush on the floor, like weeping, kind of crying, you know? Yeah. That's what I visualize. So, you know, and there is, I think a lot of speculation in the true crime world about whether or not the calls themselves were legitimate expressions of emotion. My opinion is yes, but yeah. I'm curious about yours so far.
1: It's hard to say because I don't know. We haven't gotten to who this person is or their background or their mental status at all. Yeah. They sound very genuine. They, they really do. Yeah. They sound, I mean, I keep saying, yeah, he's not giving them any information, all of that. But again, when you panic, you do get disoriented. Yeah and i think that it is this mix of authenticity but also a fear of getting in trouble yeah that you see in almost like a child like a young child yes. and like it it sounds very regressed
0: it does and this gets into one of my theories later actually so okay um to me yeah it does i guess i think of like i'm not exactly like an expert but i think almost of like as a theater person How hard it is to fake cry. Yeah. And that cry just has so much pain to it that like if an actor could catch that, that person should have like a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame.
1: Being a psychologist, you see a lot of people cry. Yeah. And it does sound authentic. Yeah. Yeah. And I keep thinking
0: and like part of me, weirdly, it took me to like really painful moments in my own life. Like I was trying to think about like times where I cried like that Uh and the times I could think of were like unspeakable pain, tragedy, Mm. dealing with a loss, dealing with these huge things. And that's what I could think that I sounded like that.
1: Similarly. So like I've had panic attacks before Mm -hmm. and it does sound like that heavy breathing, that uneven speech. Yeah. Yeah kind of thing when you're trying to explain yourself while panicking yeah so to cut back
0: in that's that's what i think of like i just think of authentic expressions of deep 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 feelings yeah you know and that's what and i saw a lot of speculation on the on the internet about like oh did he make these calls and then you know hangs up the phone and he's just like goes back to his microwave dinner and, you know, watching Cheers on TV or whatever. And I'm like, I really don't think so. Like, I don't I don't have a lot to go on. It's just kind of my gut and my research. But mm-hmm. I think that this – I think he was really destroyed.
1: Uh,
0: Which is not to say he's I'm not culpable because he's extremely exa-
1: – Exactly, exactly. And I think that that's where we have to kind of be careful. Like, he's still extremely culpable – You can have guilt and remorse and still be avoidant of consequences. Exactly.
0: And I think that's exactly where we find him. And I think the problem with this case that's hard is that I think sometimes just as humans in general, we have a very hard time when we're talking about extreme situations, thinking about any part of it in nuance.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And this is something where we're in an extreme situation. We're talking about brutal Horrific murders of young women, and we're talking about somebody who can at the same time express depravity, brutality, mm-hmm. inhumaneness, and mm-hmm. also guilt remorse right and mm-hmm. I think we that area of nuance is very uncomfortable, and I think part of why we culturally attach more to like the Bundys and the Dahmers is that coldness, and in a way, I yeah. think that coldness is easier for
1: us to understand than this. It's more digestible when you can say that somebody is pure evil than to say that, you know, somebody has nuance, I guess. It's a terrible way of explaining it. But we like extremes in this culture. Yeah, we do. And I think in a
0: lot of ways we like extremes because it's comforting to know that if it's extreme, it's not us.
1: I have literally sat with my supervisor when I was in grad school and said black and white thinking is so comforting yeah i want to be able to give harsh yes and no answers
0: totally yeah it's it's so human to want to do that you know and it's why we struggle with relational ambiguity we struggle with moral ambiguity right we want things to be in black and white but that's one of my other theories as to why this hasn't gotten you know, as much attention as some of the, uh, these other cases is mm-hmm. that I think it's it's way harder to get your head around it when it can be, in a way, normal-ish, or at least in a way understandable. Not, yeah, you know, and again, that's, he's culpable. He's a killer. He's depraved, you know. Uh,
1: and I think that one of the things, and we might go into it, and if so, cut this, but He's talking about drinking, and it sounds like the alcoholism has a component here. Mm -hmm. I think it's more relatable than we want to admit that we've all done things we regret and shameful things when we've drank. Totally. Yeah, totally. Or been otherwise inebriated. Yeah.
0: And we also self-medicate and drink Mm -hmm. to make ourselves feel better about what we've done. And for most of us, it's not killing people. Yeah. But it is, you know, other stupid shit that we've done. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. That might have harmed people. Yeah,
0: totally. And we we try to numb our pain, you know, for lack of a better word. So so that call comes in. And I think it's also interesting that he uses the language. I'm sorry I killed that girl because Mm -hmm. the girl that he's talking about is a 40 year old woman named Barbara Simons. So she's 20 years older than our other victims so far. Yeah. Karen Potak's age was reported in some news outlets to be 18, others to be 20. Either way, she's between 18 and 20. Kimberly Compton was 20. So this third victim, Barbara Simons, is 40 years old. Um, So her body was actually found um, two days before that call came in. Oh, wow. Yeah. So two days before that call came in, which does change things, too, because his other calls Mm -hmm. have been so in the moment. And then this time she was found in Minneapolis. The others were found in St. Paul. Now, again, we're just separated by like a highway and a river, but still it's two different jurisdictions or, you know, two different reporting agencies. So uh, she was found along River Road, which is along the Mississippi River. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And she had been stabbed somewhere between 60 and 80 times. Wow, this, it is such overkill. That is so disorganized. It is. And it's also, this time, uh, the tool that was used most closely resembled a screwdriver. Okay. So when they're looking at the yeah. wounds, I know, when they're looking at the wounds, they're thinking, it's not an ice pick this time. This one's a screwdriver. Mm-hmm. So it's overkill. It's disorganized. And, you know, I think a lot of times when we talk about stabbings, we're also talking about, like, very up close and personal when you think about how long a screwdriver is, maybe eight inches, you have to really be close to somebody to, to kill with an instrument like that.
1: And they're relatively blunt. Yeah. Which is like where my ooh came from because yeah. it takes a lot of
0: force. It does. And this was something that police noted that mm-hmm. um, she did not die quickly. And this would have been a very slow and painful death. Yeah. Uh she was also clothed. Um and so she was not found nude like Karen Potak was, so a little bit of a different than that first attack. Um this time the police got a little bit more lucky because a waitress a witness would come forward. So a witness came forward and she was a waitress at a bar in Minneapolis, and she actually saw Barbara leave her bar with a man and the waitress had seen her meet the man because she had bumped him a cigarette. And the sh- Barbara told the waitress something like this quote, I hope he isn't an animal. I just want to ride home. Wow. That's what the waitress remembered her telling her on her way out. So the waitress and some other witnesses at the bar described this guy to be about 40 years old, about six feet tall, 185 pounds, white with swarthy or like olive skin and receding black hair. So, in a big city, you're talking average fucking Joe, right? Could be anyone. Yeah, that's what struck me about it was like that is just, it's such an average guy description. Like, um, and I'm sure, like as infuriated as I was to hear that, the police must have been like, "Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, couldn't he have he had some like funky hair or something to?" Tell me
1: he had a tattoo. Tell me he had a facial scar. Exactly. Tell me anything.
0: Exactly. But he didn't. He was unremarkable, and that is very frustrating, right? Mm-hmm. So the call came in, and police are like, "Ah, shit." Now we've got a connection because, again, like there is that slight change in M.O. Mm -hmm. We've gone from an ice pick to a screwdriver. So suspending some disbelief and with the cooling off period that long, I don't think the link was automatic.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see why it
0: wouldn't be automatic. Yeah. A
1: hundred
0: percent. And now, again, like we're in Minneapolis, not St. Paul. So we're in a little bit of a different playing field. But once that call came in, now it's a different story. Yeah. Now it's shit. What's happening here? So the police, you know, they were mobilized by that, that fact. Um, They watched the bar. They kept an eye on it, kind of hoping that he would come back. They released that description broadly. They put out BOLO alerts to local authorities for anyone matching that description. But at this time that the police are kind of heating up about it, Weepy is also ready to escalate. Already? Already. So those cooling off periods, that first one was uh, about six months, and then we've got a year. Now we've got a matter of days.
1: I've got a theory about that, but I'll...
0: Ooh, I can't wait to hear it. That's interesting. So I'll be curious to hear if your theory, how your theory is, especially after I tell you what happened next. So... Okay, okay. On August 21st, and I remember that Barbara's body was found on the 6th of August. So now we're on August 21st. Very, very soon. So, on August 21st, a 19-year-old sex worker, Denise Williams, was approached by a man matching this description. So she was approached, she was working um, the street that she usually hung out at. Now they negotiated their price and the service, and they drove off together in the man's car. Now they stopped, had sex, and started to head back, or so Denise thought. You know, she was told that they were heading back, but she realized that they were driving in the wrong direction. So they were driving away from the twins and further out. So we also have potentially a change in territory. So they're driving away from where he picked her up, and he pulled off the road and pulled out a screwdriver, and he used it to attack her repeatedly. So Denise, being the badass that she is. I love these ones. Me too. She's being attacked by this man. This has got to be fucking horrifying. And if you can imagine that moment of, you know, you get through the sex act. You're ready to just go back and kind of go about your day. And you realize, I can't imagine that moment that you realize he's driving the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. And it was even noted later that it was not the route that she told him to take. And she was like specific Mm -hmm. about the route she wanted to take. So Denise found a pop bottle on the floor of the car, a glass soda bottle. Hell yeah. Yep. And she hit him over the head with it. Badass. She also made a lot of noise purposefully.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So
0: she's screaming. She's causing a ruckus. She hit him upside the head. So a man close by heard the commotion. And actually came to her assistance. Hell yes. So he comes to separate them. And he's actually like wrestling with the perpetrator. So they're wrestling. And at one point, the perpetrator is able to escape and run off. Mm -hmm. So Denise and her rescuer, they call 911. So she's alive. Thank goodness. Hell yes. Um, He had managed to strike her 15 times with that screwdriver. 15 times. So 911 arrives, the ambulance gets there, and they were able to provide a really, really good description. That description matched that of the man seen leaving the bar with Barbara Simons. Nice. Yes. So we've got that link. Now, this is where things get, I don't know if the word is interesting or if it's sad or if it's just like, what are you doing, you dummy? But Weepy calls the police again. This time, he calls for help for the fucking head wound that Denise gave him. Boy. Yep. Yep. Boy, bye. Seriously. So he didn't say in this call that he perpetrated the attack. He called for help. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He called for help for the head wound. And the 911 operator is like, that sounds like weepy. So she or he, if we don't know, patched that through to the police. So when uh, they got the location of the guy asking for help, they also sent police in an ambulance to that location.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So again, it's that same exact night. So he got that head wound. He escaped the guy that came to help Denise. He went home to his apartment. He called the police for his head wound. And the police are searching for somebody with a head wound because Denise told them mm-hmm. that she had broken skin, right? Yeah. So, this dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, police and EMTs respond to the apartment of the caller, and there is where they find 37 year old Paul Stefani. That is Weepy's name, Paul Michael Stefani. He, now I'll talk a little bit about court later, but. I want to get to some other stuff first so uh, basically like the notes version is that the 911 calls were entered as evidence at trial the prosecution team tried they initially tried to bring in some experts at um, voice matching to match Paul Stefani with the voice on the 911 calls that was not allowable and so they brought in instead um, some family members as well as his ex-wife to identify the voice yeah
1: Okay, just go ahead, react. Uh, I, I get it. I get where their thinking was. But also, experts in voice recognition, they study this, this is their life. They research and publish and do this all day long. Versus like family member who I get, they know him, they recognize his voice, all of that. I guess I can't support the idea of one over the other. Yeah, well, neither could the
0: judge because it was found to be inadmissible. Okay. So they were not able to use the 911 calls as any kind of evidence. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually read an interesting article that was otherwise not super well written, but it was about um, how some serial killer communicates with police like when they can and can't be used as evidence. And this case was brought up as an example of when they can't because of the lack of reliability, basically, in in those sources. So. Um, for what this meant was that, unfortunately, there was nothing else to link Paul Stefani with anything but Barbara Simons' murder and the attack on Denise. Okay. So he was not able at this time to go down for what happened to Karen or Kimberly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for the combination of those crimes, he was given a 40-year sentence. At age 37, that meant that he would be in jail for a very long time. presumably
1: the rest of okay. it. life. So would he be eligible for parole at all? Mm-mm. Okay, okay. No, so he's done. He's locked up. So until age 77, and by that time, right, you would hope there's no possibility of him being a danger to society.
0: Exactly, yeah. Now, the police still considered him to be a weepy, and the killings and attacks did stop. So for all intents and purposes, they had their guy. But that's not the end of Stefani having stuff to say. Okay. Which is also an aspect of this case I was not aware of until doing this research. But Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but before I get there, I want to talk a little bit about his life before the time of these murders. So Paul Michael Stefani was born in Austin, Minnesota, which is a very small town. And it's um, in the far south part of the state, so just north of the Iowa border. He was the second of 10 children, so a very large family. Damn. Yeah, seriously. So the family lived on several acres of land outside of Austin. So it's a small town, and they lived outside of a small town. His dad was a meatpacker at the Hormel plant in town. And if you were to ever visit Austin, Minnesota, probably the most exciting thing you would find in town is a museum dedicated to spam. Which is why I want to go. Yeah, because that sounds awesome. And I looked at pictures, and it looked rad. So I'm into it.
1: When we do our wretched tour
0: yeah. of esoteric museums in the Midwest, because one of my favorite places is the Mustard Museum in Middleton, Wisconsin. It's awesome. <laughs> so, <laughs> and they have the best t-shirts for a museum. Oh my god! So we need to go. Any Mustard Museum. Anyway, the best. So, um, this is well. I'll wait until later for my theory. So, the family was very, very devout Catholics and um stefani kind of carried that faith with him into adulthood so kind of as he kind of grew up and he realized he wasn't going to work at hormel like his dad and there was kind of a moment where that was the plan was kind of like to follow the family line and for whatever reason he wasn't going to go and do that so instead he moved to the twin cities as so many people do including two of his victims right Mm -hmm. to look for opportunity so he didn't get super lucky in the Twin Cities, unfortunately, he had a variety of jobs and they were all kind of random, pretty short term. He janitored at a, ho- a hospital for a while. He did lots of like shelving and transportation for like different manufacturing companies like steel companies uh, and tool and dye factories, things like that. But he wasn't really able to keep a job for very long at any of these places. Somewhere in that area of time, he did get married to a woman named Beverly. And they had a daughter, but he would leave them actually when the daughter was very, very little. So he abandoned his wife and daughter Mm -hmm. as a... So already a winner. Already a winner. He dated another woman that he was pretty in love with, uh, but she was a Syrian national and she actually moved back to Syria before he could manage to propose. So he's unlucky in work, unlucky in love. Nothing's working out for Mr. Stefani. He can't hold a job. He can't hold a relationship. He dates a lot. And he had, it was reported, some unspecified mental health issues. Precisely what those were or what he was treated for is pretty unknown.
1: I hate it when they leave it unspecified.
0: I know, me too, because it's like I have thoughts, but I don't know if I'm right. I mean, (sighs) a compulsion disorder of some kind, but, you know, you don't know what else. So...
1: This doesn't sound like we know much about his personal life either. We don't. How did people describe him? What was he like at work? Right. You know, unspecified mental health could be anything from generalized anxiety to severe schizophrenia. Exactly. Or, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Or drug-induced psychosis. Totally. And that,
0: I think you hit the nail on the head there because... He didn't stay anywhere for long enough for anyone to have a great sense of who he was as a person. Mm-hmm. He did not have like a long-standing job at a company where everyone knew who he was. He didn't have you know this like family life where he was operating in secret and like a great father and husband by day and a killer by night. He was somebody who was so kind of transient, I think in all ways that a person can be transient that you know, he does kind of remain a big mystery. The thing that I keep latching on to is that very devoted Catholic upbringing. And a lot of the calls when I knew that started to sound to me like um, confession. Okay. And I want to talk more about that later because that became kind of my, like the, how any kind of why could materialize in my head as far as the Mm -hmm. calls like why make the calls that That's yeah. my best theory, but we'll talk more about that, so
1: interesting, yeah, so do we know, do we know if he continued to practice Catholicism in his adulthood? He did
0: yes, okay. Mm-hmm. okay, yeah, so he remained pretty devout. He also though did have a short but violent criminal history. He had a prior arrest for an aggravated assault um before his ar- his attack on Karen Potak, so okay, he did have a criminal history, short but violent, um, okay but You know, for all that is unknown about his life, he became pretty chatty later on. So
1: Mm. I want to hear about that. Yeah.
0: In 97. So, you know, many years later, he underwent a physical exam at the prison in Stillwater where he was incarcerated. And a doctor found a suspicious looking patch of skin on his back, uh, which they later diagnosed to be metastatic skin cancer. The cancer had already spread to his lungs and some other areas. The evil's eating him. It was. And so the doctors gave him uh, just a handful of months to live. At this time, his desire to confess grew. And he gave us as much reasoning as he possibly could. Oh, weepy. Oh, weepy. What are you going to say? I know.
1: What you got to say for yourself?
0: Seriously. So I'm glad you asked that rhetorical question that I'm actually going to answer. (laughs) (laughs) Because I have a handful of quotes for you. This What comes next in kind of my tale of weepy woe is a lot. Tale of weepy woe. Tale of weepy woe, yeah. I just made that up right now. We just titled the episode. Hell yeah. (laughs) Occasionally that MFA in creative writing has to come in handy. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) after he got that diagnosis, he just wanted to talk about everything he wanted to talk about why he did what he did he wanted to talk about anything that might have been in his head in those moments so one of the first things he said was this it was like I was playing some kind of game with the police and I was using human lives as pawns I was winning because they couldn't catch me but I was crying and yelling at myself for using death as the game I couldn't believe it Hmm. so there's that mix again of that taunting but that guilt and that nuance that is so difficult to navigate
1: because it you know like the first half of that sounds like your classic Mm.
0: psychopath it does right
1: yeah but he clearly is still reeling with the guilt yeah if you believe that quote right yeah right and then it ends on that note of disbelief
0: I couldn't believe it Mm -hmm. so it's like it's that cold game playing and then it's the guilt and then it's the disbelief And I think it's those three different things that make it so hard Mm -hmm. to kind of figure out and unravel. And it makes it hard to decide, like, which part of that do you believe? Yeah. You know? And I think as hard as it is to digest that the truth is somewhere in all three. Mm -hmm. You know? But it is really hard to, you know, to kind of confront that.
1: I can believe that he felt some guilt, but I still feel like... He again, it, it's so regressed, it's so juvenile, is still, like, pushing away his involvement in it. Yeah, it is. And it's hard to tell if that dissociation is, like, I can't
0: cope with it because I'm so far out of my mind, or if it's I'm going to dissociate a little bit so that I don't come off quite as culpable, you know? Yeah. You can't tell how calculated that dissociation is.
1: Well, and we can't avoid the fact that it worked. Right. He didn't get a life sentence. He didn't get the death penalty. No, it worked. Yeah, he
0: didn't. He didn't even get, you know, prosecuted for everything he was responsible for. So now, like police and investigators and reporters, they all kind of seize the opportunity now that he's chatty Mm -hmm. to figure out kind of what else was going on. So if you remember, uh, police thought he was responsible for all of it. Karen Potak, Kimberly Compton, everything. Um, But they weren't able to prove it. So, Stefani did confess. First, Karen Potak. And about her, he said this. He basically said that he saw her leaving a party, just like we knew that she left the club, and she was standing at the side of the road. And he said, when I picked her up, she had no jacket, and I thought I'd take her for a cup of coffee. I just wanted to warm her up, and my mind snapped or something. So... To me, that one almost has a little bit of, like, a romanticizing to it. Like, he picks this girl up and he thinks something really lovely is going to happen. He's going to take her out for a cup of coffee and, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows what might happen next. What he talked about next I thought was also really interesting. So he, if you remember from that first call, he said that she would be found at the Malberg Manufacturing Company in St. Paul. Interestingly, he had actually just been fired from a job there. Oh. Yeah. So he had just been fired, like that day or like very very soon before and he was so mad at the company and this is a paraphrase of what he said he was so mad at, at the company that he wanted to do something to lash out he expressed regret that he didn't just burn a building down instead he took it out on, on Karen
1: I am making such a face right now because uh, I don't know yeah so much of that part just feels like such bullshit like yeah yeah of an excuse I don't know I don't know
0: no it does and this is where it all started to kind of unravel for me is like the whole time I'm having this really difficult sense of kind of in some weird small ways feeling kind of bad for him Mm -hmm. just because of the pain and the guilt you know
1: because if this truly is, you know, a psychotic process or a compulsive process, you you do feel bad for somebody with that mental illness as well as for the victims. Exactly, and you can have both. Yes, exactly. But now You know, you lose that when it's like, well, he was mad already. And and he was just looking for somewhere to put
0: it. And that's where it all really unraveled for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And that would kind of continue to be the case. So they then asked him about Kimberly Compton. And there was kind of a similar story there. So Stefani says he was sitting at Mickey's Diner having a cup of coffee. And joking around with another guy that he had just kind of met and they were just chatting, you know, you imagine sitting at like a, the bar at a diner, you know, <laughs>
1: <laughs> i spent many a day at Waffle House. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. You're just chilling at the Waffle House. Right. And you just kind of chat with people near you. And that's what he had been doing.
1: So I'm an introvert, so I don't, but yeah, I
0: do. So just imagine that it's me instead. Okay. Um. So Stefani we can't tell if he noticed her departing the bus that we knew that she got off of, remember from earlier. Mm -hmm. Um, but she got off the bus and she walked into the diner and she sat near where Stefani and the other guy were and just kind of joined their little friendly conversation. They're just having a chat. And he would say that the conversation started to be less about the three of them kind of chatting and turned to kind of him and Kimberly just kind of connecting a little bit more. And he said, Mm -hmm. We started talking and I told her I'd show her around town. I thought I'd drive by the river and maybe we'd see the Delta Queen or have a picnic. But in 15 minutes, she was dead. My mind snapped again. Mm -hmm. So, again, you've got that same kind of mental process as with Karen. Like, I think it's going to be or I'm saying that I think it's going to be this lovely kind of romantic thing. And then I snap and she's gone.
1: Yeah, it's. It, he keeps saying, I snapped, I lost it, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But those setups sound more and more like you just got mad because you got rejected.
0: Yeah. So whether he knows it or not, he's building a pattern now that police didn't have the first time. Yeah. And that's what I think is also super interesting. Like he keeps kind of happening upon these very similar looking single women.
1: Mm-hmm. He's
0: having the same thought process and then it has the same conclusion. He's building a profile. Um, and so he's kind of putting together all the pieces that we didn't have before. So then he starts to have kind of a little retrospective. He, um, (laughs) so this is kind of another direct quote from him. He says, you know, I was sitting in the hospital for a month and sitting there knowing you're going to die. Gave me time to really think at Stillwater and St. Cloud, which are two of the prisons. It's too loud to think. But lately, I've been thinking about families and the funerals. Kimberly was right out of high school. I asked myself, Paul, would you like it if your sister was killed right out of high school? I wouldn't have liked it. But I was sick, is all I can say. Girl, your face right now. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that this matches all of our listeners' faces, too. It's kind of like a scrunched up little cute, confused French bulldog
1: sort of look. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I've always thought I looked like a Frenchman. <laughs> you don't, but the expression was perfect. I, j- I just, I can't even understand that train of thought. Yeah. Like, I was looking at pictures of him, so. No, oh, he's like a. Well, describe your impression of him. He looks like he sells used cars. Yeah. He looks like his shirts are slightly too small, and he has a hairy stomach that hangs out underneath them. Yes. Um,. Bad comb over from his receding hairline. Did he have a mustache in one of these? He did, a very thick one. Yeah. 80s, 80s, 80s it's stash. 80s, yeah. Oof. Oof? The the kind if, if he talk if he tried to chat me up at the Waffle House, I would not go for a drive down the river with him.
0: No, me neither. And that is also what makes me kind of skeptical about his mm-hmm. his recount of these stories. Like yeah you want to tell me that a twenty year old girl got in your car completely willingly mm-hmm. from this diner mm-hmm. I mean, love is blind, but I don't think I would be picked up by a guy twenty years older than me at a diner. No, no, not no and but I think what you said too is also like reiterates how much he just looked very, very normal. Very average. Yeah. So
1: average. Yeah. Like... He looks like half of the middle-aged men in the Midwest. Exactly. Just painfully average. So,
0: I also just think it's really important at this point to point out that when he says the word snapped, I just snapped, what he means is I stabbed somebody over 60 times with a motherfucking ice pick.
1: Which also... uh, You have to think you don't just have an ice pick. Right. Man A screwdriver? Yes. I like I have screwdrivers in my car.
0: Sure, I have one in my car too. Yeah. But I certainly don't have an ice pick. Which it's interesting that you say that because this next little bomb I'm about to drop on you is super interesting. Do you feel like you know Weepy right now?
1: I you know what, I feel like he is in my soul. We are bonding. We are scratching our hairy belly together. (laughs) <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, that's just when I look at the pictures of him, that is how I imagine.
0: No, I'm sure he definitely had a hairy belly. Girl, you don't know. You do not know Weepy because I'm about to blow your mind. Are you ready? Okay, tell me. Are you ready?
1: I want to know Weepy.
0: So, look, okay. And the next confession that he would make was very, very, very shocking because it was a crime that he had not been previously linked to at all. So we've heard what we thought of as his string of victims, according to the police, right? Mm-hmm. So the next crime that he would talk about, he was never linked to. And in fact, was not even ruled a homicide in the first place. Oh,
1: okay. Tell me more. I will.
0: so, uh, and I think some parts of this are going to tug at your heartstrings because we've been this woman before. So, um, on July 20th of 1982, which is right in the middle of that very long cooling off period I talked about earlier. Mm. Uh, Kathleen Greening, who is 33, was found drowned in her bathtub in her home in Lauderdale, Minnesota. So that's not the Twin Cities. That's further out. Yeah. This is the sad part. So she was discovered by her best friend who actually came over to pick her up on their way to a girl's trip to Mackinac Island.
1: Oh,
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So Kathleen was found in the bathtub of her home. She was found very clean. So initially, they just thought it was a a horrible accident. Perhaps she fell or, you know, who knows what they thought had happened the first time. But... Some further investigation did prove that some aspects of the death appeared suspicious, like she was very, very clean, almost suspiciously clean. Like if she had fallen and hit her head, you would think there would have been blood, which there wasn't. And suicide by drowning is actually extremely uncommon. Yeah, your body doesn't really let you do it. It is very, very hard. Exactly. So so there were aspects of it that looked suspicious. She was also, this is kind of a minor detail, but something that would become kind of important to police later, was that she was kind of found, like you think of yourself laying in your bathtub, right? And you kind of lay away from the faucet, like Mm -hmm. your head is resting on the other end, right? Um, So she was found the opposite way, with her head beneath the faucet.
1: Okay, yeah, that's suspicious.
0: Yeah, and it's just, it's not the comfortable way that you would take a bath, right? Like, you take a bath, you kind of lean your back against the back and, you know, and do your thing. So there were some things about it that were kind of out of order. Now, Kathleen was in the middle of a very, very difficult divorce, Mm -hmm. so police put all of their attention on her estranged husband, and they were looking for, like, financial motives, personal motives, anything And there was a short series of litigation about this, but none of it really went anywhere because they couldn't tie any of those loose strings. But Paul Stefani says, I was responsible for the killing of Kathleen Greening. Did he have any connection to her? Well, here's what it was. So as it turns out, he and Greening had actually casually dated. So Paul Stefani dated a lot. And so they dated on and off kind of after she was separated from her husband. And when this part just pissed me off. When his other girlfriend, who he lived with at the time in St. Paul, went out of town, he... mm Mm-hmm. Yep. mm Yep. He called up Kathleen Greening for a date, basically. Allegedly, she invited him over, and the link that police found... Which at the time, of course, in 82 was not a link because they didn't have a name for Weepy, but they did later when they went back, they found his name in her address book. So they were able to substantiate their relationship. So he gave her a call when his other girlfriend was out of town and she invited him over. And this is what he said had happened. He said, we made love and were taking a bath and joking around. And my brain snapped again and I pushed her under the water. Okay. Yeah.
1: I just... I don't
0: buy I don't, it. None of it makes any sense. I don't buy it. Here's why you're extra not going to buy it. You ready? So, mm-hmm. it's weird because it's such a deviation. You see how much I'm gesticulating? <laughs> My hands are like... You are always I am. I know. Though. So, it's such a deviation from what he would ordinarily do, right? He... Mm -hmm. He committed stabbings. So the question comes up, why why the drowning? Like, that's not part of your MO, essentially. And he said, well, this isn't direct quote, it's paraphrase, but, well, I brought the ice pick with me, but she saw it.
1: See, that's some bullshit. That's not like, oh, I snapped. Oh, I lost Mm -hmm. control. It's you went in there with the motherfucking ice pick. With a motherfucking plan.
0: Exactly. And oh. she saw it, so your plan had to change, but you still had a plan. So mm-hmm. this is the moment where I'm like, Paul Stefani is the serial killer, kind of lost to time, I think, in our like cultural imagination. And this this was the moment that I thought, why? Like, because that speaks to premeditation. You don't bring an ice pick over to have dinner with somebody.
1: I'm literally like racking my brain for like reasons why you can <laughs> ice pick and I don't know. Like, okay, Minnesota gets cold, but it's July or June. I can't remember what month. Yeah, we're, we're in. in July. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. So
0: mm-hmm. It's, it's warm. Need a nice, you pick, need boy. nice pick, So there was, I think, there was premeditation there without a doubt. Without a mm-hmm. doubt. So, but because it went down so differently and I think. There's also a different trajectory to our storytelling when everything kind of goes down, there's a manhunt, there's an apprehension, Mm -hmm. and then everything kind of lines up the way we want it. With this one, all the news and hubbub was confined to just this two-year span, basically, and then all this confessing came later. So you don't have Mm -hmm. that same, like, kind of ramp-up, ramp-up resolution that we're used to seeing, right? Like, we like our Frey Tags pyramid. We didn't get it. That's that's part of my theory. So now the police asked him, why didn't you call? You'd called? Why didn't you call this time? And he said that he instead went to St. Paul's Cathedral and cried to God. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. Did anybody see him at St. Paul's Cathedral? Good question. Don't know. Yeah, I'm I don't curious. know. I'm just curious. Yeah. So
0: in the end, you know, he gives these confessions and uh he dies less than a year later. So, you know, they gave him a handful of months to live. He died in jail uh on June twelfth of ninety eight. He was fifty-three. And that was kind of the end of the story in a lot of ways. Like he made his confessions. He he did what you know, and the reason that he gave those confessions, we don't know. Like was it really just that deathbed guilt? Was it something else? But he gave the confessions and that's kind of where Paul Stefani Ends, right
1: I, I'm i curious just I don't know did he get his like last rites like from I believe East? he did yeah mm-hmm. okay only curious to see like okay how actually dedicated to the catholic church are you and that would speak to you know was this a deathbed confession a religious kind of thing
0: yeah no I the one thing about him that I do buy is I do buy his faith I do think that he was a very Mm -hmm. devout Catholic and that, that is what kind of ends up being my, my remaining theory about the calls. I think in a lot of ways there's something about those calls that mimics confession to me. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you walk into the confession booth and you say, bless me or forgive me father for I have sinned. It has been, you know, one year since my last confession. And then you talk about what, what you did. Mm-hmm. That "Bless me, Father, for I have sinned." moment is kind of the signal to the priest to just be quiet and let you talk. Don't exactly. talk exactly. So when he says, "Don't talk, just listen," my thought is that he's simulating the act of of contrition. He's simulating that sacrament. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> obviously, I sound like a cradle Catholic because I am.
1: Because <laughs> you are. <laughs> somebody went to all <laughs> yeah
0: right <laughs> <laughs> so so I think he was simulating the act of contrition and I think when he says like don't talk just listen and then he not only confesses to the crime at hand he goes back to Kimberly Compton was the first one back in St. Paul so and that's what you're asked to do in confession as well you have to give a you know a recount. It's been so many days since my confession, last confession. And here's everything I've done since then. And you know, when you're a little kid and you go to confession for the first time, it's like, uh, I ate a Snickers I wasn't supposed to eat. And then I, I kicked my exactly. brother. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you kind of, but the ask is basically that like you're supposed to list everything that you've done, right? So in a way, I think those calls are him doing that.
1: That's really fascinating because i had never heard that yeah
0: before that i mean that is what really kind of worked for me and then there's that like like moment of struggle as far as like what is the penance i don't want to get locked up mm-hmm. i don't want to kill myself i don't want to do these things right and in a confession space you would be given a penance and then forgiveness mm-hmm. so i wonder for him if there was this thought of if I vocalize this, if I confess this, if I, if I put a timestamp stamp on it, if I say what I did, can I be forgiven? And mm. if we remember from our mandatory reporting moment that confidentiality extends to religious clergy. So I also wonder if there's some old priest out there in
1: St. Paul, Minnesota
0: that heard all of this before.
1: I think it has changed. I think it has, too. It has, but yeah, you it I believe in the seventies and the eighties they were exempt from I think they crimes. were. I'm pretty sure
0: they were. I don't think that changed happened until the nineties. That would be worth a fact check. And I will fact check that, but that's we'll get back to we back will next week. but that's what I I'm pretty sure. So I do wonder, especially when after Kathleen, the difference with Kathleen was not just the Emma but the fact that he knew her. So it stands to reason that he would treat it differently, that he would go, that it was different, it was a deviation. So instead of following his normal pattern, he would go to the church and do that instead.
1: I'm curious, do you also think that, so for the final attack, he also didn't call to confess. Right. He called to report an injury. I wonder if also he was just getting more clever, more calm in his approach. Mm. Like, normally when we talk about serial killers, we talk about them kind of like you know, getting confident and then they kind of like start making mistakes and all Mm. of that. And I wonder if for him, he was actually gaining confidence in these early attacks. That could be. Yeah, and by going to a priest rather than calling the police to confess that was him kind of leveling out and finding confidence in his actions
0: that could be because she would have been after kimberly but before barbara
1: simon's Mm -hmm.
0: yeah my theory was actually the opposite i the the take i took after just kind of thinking about it, meditating about it for a while was that he i think with denise williams he got sloppy I think he let somebody mm-hmm. into his vehicle, which means that there's going to be blood evidence. And in fact, there was. That car was horrible. The pictures of that car were horrible. So I think, and he also deviated from um, having the murder take place. I didn't speak to this, but the murders were thought to take place where the bodies were found. So mm-hmm. kind of a one location. I kind of wonder if Denise was a cry for help
1: in a way. But to me, that sounds like, like to me, it's smarter. Yeah to take them elsewhere right yeah to kind of remove them from the scene of the abduction to the scene of the yeah. crime and i, I guess i like that's why i thought
0: about it that yeah. way yeah i think what's interesting about it is that i think both are kind of true like he got yeah. smarter as far as where he was going to take her but he did not get smarter as far as a weapon of choice no like a screwdriver is not an efficient killing tool I think there might be both at play, which I think speaks to him being this like weird mix of premeditated. Like I do think that he Mm -hmm. was cogent of his predilections, but I also, there's also this bizarre disorganization to it. Like you have a screwdriver, not an actual knife or the ice pick or Mm -hmm. something that makes more sense. Honestly, like. And that is like, was it spontaneous or was it premeditated or was it kind of both? Well,
1: and one of the things that I think is interesting is that premeditation doesn't necessarily have to happen days or hours beforehand. Premeditation can happen in the five minutes beforehand.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think really all that means like legally and intellectually is just that you thought about doing it before you did it.
1: And he clearly did.
0: Yeah, so whether or not he set out that day to kill Denise, we don't know. But he certainly set out that day to solicit a sex worker, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And whatever changed in that moment or in that span of time, there was thought to it, right? So I I think he's just a really good example of ambiguity. Like, everything with him is so mixed. Down to, I think, how we feel about him, how we kind of absorb him and digest what he did, how he kind of dealt with what he did, and also literally what he did has, I think, to some degrees, like a a very strict kind of certainty to it, but also these weird Mm -hmm. aspects to it that are really ambiguous and strange. Mm -hmm. So that's
1: Weepy. I feel like I have a lot to like. M- I
0: know, and that is what I hope our listeners are feeling too—just mulling. Now, what I will say though is that you're not going to find more than what I just said.
1: <laughs> <And that's, laughs> not to you know whatever, but, but I
0: mean, I have two master's degrees, like I know what I'm doing.
1: <laughs> so she knows how to do. I do, degrees.
0: I do. But what I mean is not to be. not. What I mean is there's not much out there. You combed through. I did. So I think the rest of the thought work is kind of on us. How we mull and digest about this case is not by finding more information. It's about thinking about what does premeditation mean? What Mm -hmm. does confession mean when it's not the type of confession we're used to hearing where it's like, you know, a police pressure deposition or somebody walking in and giving a full confession to a crime of their own volition this was half of one half of the other right and then you get that deathbed confession Mm and so nothing about it is straightforward yeah so welcome to ambiguity babies
1: i hate it do we know anything else about the drinking
0: just that he drank a lot. Um, he was not treated from what I could find for alcoholism, but... That doesn't But he drank. He certainly drank. He drank. He slept around. He had a life that was characterized by just a complete lack of consistency. Okay. And he did have an aggravated assault under his
1: belt before his attack on Karen Potek. So he had a past. I just... I guess... I guess I can't get past the mention of alcohol in the second call. Like, does he drink to a point and then he commits these acts and then has a sobering moment. Mm.
0: I took it to be that he drinks to forget. Okay. Yeah. But I I wonder if there's
1: again, it can, it can go both both ways. ways. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's time. this weird, like, little Ouroboros of terribleness. Like, it just Ugh. keeps, like, swallowing itself and resurfacing, right?
1: The Midwest, an Ouroboros.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Wretched.
1: <laughs> an Ouroboros Oh, my gosh. Terribleness. Terribleness. <laughs> oh,
0: Perhaps that's our time I to stop.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll cut off there. I'm sorry, guys.
0: <laughs> we love you.
1: Tune in next week. It is our 10th episode. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. I'm super excited. We're going to cover one of my favorite cases in history. So interesting. So upsetting. So upsetting. So important. Should I give the name? Yes. Okay, so we're going to be covering the case of Sylvia Likens. Some people might know it by the perpetrator's name, Gertrude Banijewski. Girl, I'm excited.
0: I love that you can't hit a latino or italian name to save your life but you hit that polish ass shit on the first try <laughs> shout out to your mom shout out to my mom <laughs> um so that's going to be a really interesting case and it's going to bring us back to the hoosier state so tune in who's your friends Look, you guys, thank you so much for listening. We are um, just like so delighted by how many people are actually out there listening to us talk about this stuff. It's awesome.
1: Yeah, I'm constantly shocked when I see us getting like listeners and people caring and it's amazing. We really, really, we
0: really do. It's it's a beautiful surprise (laughs) and we hope that you'll stay with us and that you stay interested. Um, Keep engaging with us on the socials. We really appreciate it. So you know, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. Uh, you're always welcome to email us midrash at com. We love to hear from people. We like reviews, especially good ones, only good ones, really, but you know,
1: happy, good ones. I get really sad about the bad. Yeah. Ones.
0: But you know, we take feedback. We like feedback. We take so feedback. yeah, we, we do. like constructive feedback. So all that to say, thank you for listening. Thank you for engaging with us. We're glad to welcome you to our terrible Midwestern Ouroboros.
1: We love you guys. We do.
0: Stay nice out there. Be nice. Eat cheese. And we love you. We love you. The best thing, oh, that's a microphone to the titty.